Welcome to Dispatch in Depth, where we give you the stories behind the science of emergency dispatch. This is an official podcast of the International Academies of Emergency Dispatch, the world's leading authority in dispatch science. I'm your host, Becca Barris, writer and copy editor for the Journal of Emergency Dispatch. In each episode, we'll be bringing you stories of the fascinating people who work in this area. We'll give you their backstory, including how they got there, what they're working on, and what drew them to the field. These are people who represent the cutting edge in emergency dispatch, and I hope you'll join us to hear more about them. Welcome to Dispatch in Depth. This is the second in a two-part series about the IED's Instructor Academy. If you haven't listened to the first part where we talk with Eric Fayad, Associate Director of Instructor Services, go back to get the Academy's perspective on this course. In this episode, we're talking to several people who recently took the EMD and EPD Instructor Academy to hear about their individual experiences. Today's guests are Michelle Vetter, Senior Public Safety Telecommunicator with Morris County Communications in New Jersey, Deborah McCombs, Emergency Call Taker 3 with Prince George's County in Maryland, Matthew Folletti, an officer with the Met Police in London, and David Emerson, a senior clinician in Australia. Welcome, Michelle. Hi, how are you? Thank you for having me. Yeah, we're really excited to have you today. It's always good to get lived experience from people. Yeah, absolutely. So let's start out with kind of a standard question on dispatch in depth, and that is, how did you get into emergency response as a career? So I started off as an EMT, as a volunteer, and then I had moved on to working in my local hospital as an ER tech, and I saw paramedics coming in, and I was like, wow, I really think that's something that I want to do. I went to paramedic school, and then I became a paramedic, and I did that for a while, and then I moved on to the quote-unquote dark side and went to dispatch, and I've been there for four years, and I'm really loving being where I'm at now. Yeah, so tell me a little bit more about where you're at. Yeah. Morris County Communications, it's a large PSAP in New Jersey. We cover over 20 law enforcement agencies and over 40 fire and EMS agencies, as well as taking 911 calls for most of the towns as a primary PSAP in the county. So, you know, pretty big, pretty big deal. What was the biggest change for you going from an EMT on the streets to doing dispatch? Yeah, so the biggest thing is you don't see anything and you don't really get the follow-up. So, you know, I went from being a paramedic where I'm on scene, I see everything, I'm handling everything myself, to answering a 911 call where you have no idea what's coming. You know, when you go as a paramedic, you get an idea from dispatch or police that are already on scene, you know, X, Y, and Z is going on here. So you are preparing yourself on your way, but when you answer a 911 call, you have no idea what's on the other end. It could be, hey, I'm locked out of my vehicle, or it could be my baby's not breathing. So that was the biggest challenge and not being able to see. As a paramedic, you can kind of see what's going on with someone. They're pale. On the other end, you kind of have to get the description from the person on scene who may have no medical background at all. And what they think is a stroke could be something completely different. So that obstacle is something that we had to overcome. Yeah. So you've been in dispatch for four years. Does it still drive you crazy sometimes that you can't see what's going on and that you don't get followed? Not so much now that I've had to learn to, you know, take the cues from what people are saying on scene just based on their, you know, as soon as they call. Not all the calls are hysterical when you get them, but when you do 
you you know you have like the hair that stands on the back of your neck where you know that inkling that something is not right even if they're not giving you the whole story so i think you kind of learn instincts i guess to fill in the blanks and stuff like that it's definitely still a challenge but it's not as scary to me not scary but i can't think of the word not as not as much of a hurdle as it was when I first started. Yeah, yeah. It's almost like like most things as humans, the more we do them, the better we get at them. Exactly. So let's pivot a little bit to the Instructor Academy. How did you hear about it? So when I had first started, we were taught EMD, EPD, EFD. And so when I was taught EMD, it was a paramedic that had originally been a paramedic in New Jersey and is now teaching the class. And so I looked into what you would have to be or what you'd have to do to be able to teach EMD. And I had looked on the website and you had to have street experience and dispatch experience. And when our agency went to get the ACE accreditation and have their own in-house instructor, the admin had approached me if that was something I would be interested in because I have the prior experience of being a paramedic and there's no one else in our agency that has those credentials. And I said, absolutely, that's been something I've been thinking of. And so now finally in May, we have gotten our ACE accreditation. So as soon as we got that, I had put in my application and I was ready to go. Yay, congratulations <laughs> on both becoming an instructor and then also getting ACE. Those are both very arduous paths yeah. to take. So you have street experience as an EMT. Do you also have teaching experience either as a paramedic or in the dispatch center? So as a paramedic, I have taught, I precepted, so I've had students. I'm a CTO training officer at our agency now. So I have not had classroom experience, but I've had students where I've had to teach them, you know, what I know and the way that I can teach it and how I was taught. So I went to the academy. That was one of the things that obviously teaching experience would be a huge help. But when I went there, I had no classroom experience. Yeah. One-on-one -on -one is a lot, not a lot different, but significantly different from teaching a classroom. Yep. And when I had went there, there was a lot of others that were in the same boat as me. There was some who have had like maybe a couple of classes here and there that they've taught, but nothing to this level. And the Instructor Academy definitely made me a lot more comfortable and made everyone more comfortable, gave us pointers from their experience. This is how I teach this. And from day one to day five, I was way more comfortable. It was like a complete turnaround of how I felt about teaching in front of a class for sure. Cool. So tell me about the course. Tell me about the academy. You rocked up in Salt Lake and you were like, all right, make me into an instructor. Were you prepared for the fire hose of information that would be spewed at you? Pam Stewart had said uh, we were there eight o'clock in the morning and she's like, you're going to have a great experience, but your brain is going to be exhausted by the end of this. And she was not wrong filled with information. Obviously, I use EMD at work every day when I take a 911 call and we use ProQA. So I'm thinking, you know, I know everything about this. So this is going to be easy. But having to take my knowledge and teach it to someone who's never had it before or doesn't know how to use the card sets, you know, I had to retrain my brain and go back to like day one because we do use ProQA a lot. So it's all done for you. So Luckily, the instructors made it easy. They have a lot of pointers. You know, we got to be with the priority dispatch staff who was there as they were teaching it. And they're like, oh, let's make this change here so that it's better. So everyone in the whole place was making it easier as we were going along. And if we had made a pointer like, hey, maybe it would be easier if we taught this way. Or if 
you know, this slide has this instead, it might be easier for someone to understand. And as we were going through it, as Vicki was teaching it, we were making changes. And she was taught from Dr. Clausen himself how to teach this class. So it was pretty amazing to have that experience and years and years and years of her teaching, giving us pointers of how she does it and how she's been successful with it. So it was a great experience. Yeah. What did you find most valuable about the course? The PowerPoints that are laid out for you. So I was going in and Eric had sent all these so much information prior to so that you were prepared. So I'm reading through, you know, the EMD book, the PowerPoints, and we were obviously given some homework. Hey, these are the sections that you're going to teach in front of us. And I was a little overwhelmed at first. And I was like, do I have to make my own PowerPoint? Am I going to have to make my own presentation? Poor Eric, I'm emailing him. Hey, where do I find this? What am I going to have to do? And like all this stuff. And then I get there day one and he's like, you're fine. The PowerPoint's already prepared. This is going to be your little section. And that I think was the most valuable that one, the PowerPoints are all laid out for you exactly how you want it. So each class is going to be taught the same. And then underneath, which I didn't even know was a thing on PowerPoint is the instructor notes. So it's giving you pointers as you're teaching so that you're hitting all the notes that they want you to hit. So it's basically foolproof unless I sit up there and I stutter in front of them. I'm not going to be able to miss or any points that I'm supposed to be making. It's completely foolproof and set up for you. It's really nice, right? Because it's kind of like the protocols themselves. You know, you have people taking right. calls. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. And some people might be like, oh, you know, it's robotic. It's a script. No. Now Michelle has more room in her brain to answer questions. Right. I don't have to have everything memorized. I don't have to. As much as I could have my own note cards, the instructor notes are pretty much note cards. So I'm like, hey, if I, I can always go back, you know, if we get off a tangent, I can bring myself back in because EMD, as they had said, while we're the instructor academy is really packed compared to the other protocols of information that you need to get out in the short amount of time. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Do you already have a course scheduled that you're going to teach? Yes, we have to do some team teaching. So we have to teach with another instructor at least twice. So one instructor, like a senior or master instructor, they teach one half, we teach the other half, and then vice versa. And then we do the full one in front of the master instructor as our third. If we need more, obviously, Eric said, you know, if you're not feeling comfortable, but no one's going to feel comfortable right at the beginning. Yeah. So my first one will be the second week of December in-house. We have new hires coming in. Typically, our agency does an in-house EMD quarterly for new hires. So that'll be my first one. So I had more... I think good enough time to prepare because I had taken the course in October. We just got another email of some updates on the PowerPoint. So I'm not going through the entire thing in one day, but slowly like refreshing myself and keeping myself up to date. So I have some time to prepare for sure for that. Cool. So how are you feeling about it? Uh, I'm nervous. Uh, as you know, obviously one-on-one is different, but they're new. So I don't know them. I feel like when you teach in front of your peers, you, there's always that like, you know, they know what you're talking about. So there's always that little scrutiny that may be like, mm, that's not exactly how it is, or I don't do it that way. Or so it's like, I have a clean slate and, and there'll be another instructor there. So if they're like, you're kind of going off the wrong way, or that's not exactly how it is, I'll have someone there with experience that, Hey, I've done it this way, or Hey, you're doing a great job here. You know, I'm a little nervous as it will be my first one. But I know that I have so many tools with the academy, with an instructor, with the PowerPoint. I'm not going in it completely blind. 
And that's really comforting, right? Yeah. And right at the end of class, Vicky was like, email me anytime. Eric's email me anytime. You know, it's not like, hey, you're out on your own. Good luck. Yeah, for sure. So, Michelle, what is one thing that you would tell someone who's considering taking the Instructor Academy? Definitely, if your only thing is public speaking, don't let that scare you because not that I'm afraid of public speaking, but it's definitely different because I've never taught in front of a class. I feel so much more comfortable than I did on day one compared to day five. One of the activities that Eric had us do was write down our fears or what we are expecting on the board. And by the end of the week, we've started to erase some things and pretty much everything was wiped off the board. No one's going to be 100% comfortable the first day. And, you know, as we had one presentation, I was really nervous the first one. And then we got some feedback. And then I did another one the second day. And you can see it. As much as you're still feeling nervous, they're telling you, you looked more nervous day one. Day two, you could not tell that you had nerves at all. And the academy made me so much more comfortable, gave me so many pointers. And I feel like completely different from the beginning to the end, for sure. That's really cool. I hadn't heard about you guys writing your fears on the boards before. Expectations for like concerns, I think is the verbiage that he used. Interesting that you're going in there thinking like, I'm the only one who feels this way. And pretty much everyone had the same fears, concerns on the board <laughs> and expectations. Yeah. And that really helps you bond as a group too. You're a team. Yep. Well, Michelle, thank you so much for being with us today. And hopefully we'll talk to you again soon. Absolutely. I would love that. Thank you so much for having me. Welcome, Debbie. Hi, how are you today? I'm doing well. I'm so glad to have you on the podcast. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So how did you get into emergency response? How did you get into policing as a career? I started off many years ago as a police officer. A girlfriend of mine was applying to the police department and she said, oh, I'm going to fill out an application. Why don't you come on and go with me? And I was like, Nobody's going to hire me as a police officer, but okay. And we went in, and honestly, within, it was amazing. It's just my career. It, it was interesting. It was something different every day, and it just grew. It just grew. And you're in Maryland, right? Yes. And is that where you have been a police officer the whole time? Absolutely, yes. Grew up in the area, policed here. Now I'm in the 911 center here, and yeah, this is my home base. Cool. So when did you switch over to 911? So back in the day, I have to say, say like the 80s, no, 90s, our police department was over the 911 center. They ran the 911 center. And so while I was an officer, I went out on maternity leave to have my daughter. I was assigned to communications and some things happened and I was just sitting in the back answering 911 calls and the next thing I knew I was running the shift so that was just supposed to be for the two months until I had my daughter and then I was supposed to go back to the street and I was off for a few months after she was born and they called me and said hey do you want to come back your shift wants you back and I was surprised I was like really so I went back in and I actually stayed in there for five years as a supervisor in 911 so moving forward I retired in 2004 and I went back to the police department on contract just doing things. And then my daughter says, I think I'm going to go out of state to college. And I was like, oh, maybe I need a real job now. So I applied to 911 and went back as a call taker. That's what you get for being really good at your job. You get promoted. You get people wanting you back. Yeah. But interesting, 
it's a whole different world. It's very interesting. You never have two days that are the same. You know, our center does all three, police, medical, and fire for the entire county. And we have a county of over a million people. So it's always something different going on. I love it. Yeah. It's calls, 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 calls all day. Yes. <laughs> so how did you hear about the Instructor Academy, the role of EPD instructor? The person that was our instructor left. And so I guess they haven't had an instructor in-house in probably three years. So they talked to me about it probably a year ago and asked me, was I interested? And so I was kind of like, hmm, teaching. Okay, that's different. So I did. I applied. And to my surprise, they said, hey, yeah, you qualify. And so then I came and that was an, a very very positive experience going through the instructor class was great. There was a guy from Australia in my class, a couple of people from the UK. So I got to see a different perspective on 911 and policing through them. It was great. Yeah. Did you have any experience teaching in all of your time as a 911 call taker, dispatcher, and police officer, or was it completely new to you? So I never really formally taught. Like they say, okay, this is your curriculum and you're going to teach it. But I was always out in the community. I ran a unit called community policing. And so I was out in the, in the, in the unit in the street talking to people about crime prevention, public safety, auto theft prevention. So I guess in that aspect, it wasn't a formal classroom, but I would be in, you know, like one of the community colleges talking to people or at a community meeting. So I was always in the public teaching something, but never formally like with a curriculum. Yeah. So how have you adjusted to that then? Did you find it hard? Were you like, oh, this is way easier than I thought it would be? It was. It was because the academy has it laid out. But when you sit down and you start to talk to people about it and you start teaching them about it and you give them examples from your experience and you draw and you're able to help out with their questions that they don't quite understand it. You know, I, I, I like to take things and, and simplify it, I guess I could say. I try to make so that I give them that everyday example and so they'll remember it, but then I still have to put it in a format that they want to learn it in. It was a lot easier than I thought. Good. That's always a really good thing because it is it's an intense process, right? Like it's six months from when you first apply to you actually get to the course. And then the course is so much, so much information being thrown at you. And then you have to do all of your team teaches. So it's good. It's good that you thought it was easier than initially expected. That is always a good thing. I mean, still hard work, right? And you definitely put in the hours. Having the background helps a whole lot. I was all that. And the only thing I was like nervous about in the very beginning was the formal part, standing in front of people and talking. But once you get started, and especially once they ask the first question and you get over that hurdle of the first question, it's kind of easy after that. Take some of the stress off, I should say. <laughs> yes, it does. As soon as people get engaged, you're like, oh, okay, they are listening. That's kind of important. Yes. Just for a final question, what is some advice you would give people who are thinking about becoming an instructor? Don't overthink it. I think that was my big hurdle, overthinking it. Can I really do this? Do I really have what they're looking for in an instructor? Don't overthink it. Just go in. Learn what you need to learn and present it. People will make it easy for you. 
like I said, once they start asking you questions or you see, hey, that light come on, they say, oh, I got it. I understand that. It gets a lot simpler. Don't overthink it. I mean, that's great advice for anything. Maybe some things you should overthink, but this is not one of them. Debbie, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I really appreciate it. I appreciate you. Welcome, Matt. Hi there. Hi there. How are you? Not too bad. Thank you very much. How did you get into emergency response as a career? So once I'd finished university, there was a little period in between where I was starting my new university job. It was one of the big four in accountancy. And I joined the Metropolitan Police as what's called a special constable. So it's kind of a, a part-time role where you're essentially giving up your time to become a police officer because you get cuffs, you get a warrant card, you get the full training, you get to arrest people and stuff like that. You're just doing it as a part of like a community. I don't know if like the peeling principles, but the um, people are the police and the police are the people. That goes back to Robert Peel, who founded the Met Police in the 19th century, I think it was. So I did that, trained for it. And then I started my full-time job doing accountancy and found myself liking working with people more than I liked working with numbers. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to ditch off what I was doing and join the police full-time. Right on. And how long ago was that? So that was 2016. So, yeah, a few years back. Okay, yeah. Not that long ago that I can, you know, swing the lantern and stuff like that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, but long enough that you know that you like what you do, yeah? Absolutely. No regrets so far. Good. That's good. And you're on the burglary squad, right, for London Metro? Yes, so I'm on the burglary squad, proactive burglary squad for southeast London. So we cover like Lewisham, Greenwich, Borough, which gets Greenwich Mean Time comes from, and Bexley. And we're basically just sort of like proactive in the sense that we don't follow the investigations through. We've got a lot of detectives fall out. We just go out and get them in for the detectives, basically. Yeah. So since you don't work directly with your dispatch center, I mean, you haven't been a call taker. What have your interactions with dispatch been like? I mean, the biggest interaction is when you are what we call manning up response team. So when you are taking calls, you are working directly with the CAD dispatchers and et cetera. But in the nature of the job, sometimes you have aid and you go up like protests up in London and the big headquarters for the South London is Lambeth and that is where one of the control rooms is. So I've been to, just by chance, just been to the control rooms a couple of times just to see the chaos. Did you know anything about the protocols or standard procedure before you did the Instructor Academy? So... The Met Police does use a different system than PDC. At the end of the day, it is the same. There's there's call takers. And I know some forces, especially in America, smaller forces might combine that call taker and dispatch element. But in the Met, you've got your call takers or what's called first contact. There's another name for it. And then it goes, the call's taken, it's triaged, and then it will go to a dispatcher or a CAD handler. And they're in constant contact with like the borough that they are policing. So that's the voice that we hear. But whoever does the call is a different voice, basically. Right. You're right. They do combine that role a lot in smaller centers, like you were saying. So how did you hear about the Instructor Academy then? Well, I heard about it by luck. My father's done a bit of work, a few years of work with Priority Dispatch and the Academy. And one of the people down in Bristol, Louise, she got in contact and um, and was aware that she was looking for someone a bit closer on this side of the water to uh, become a police trainer and it was just good timing as well with I mean the ambulance is definitely settled in in the UK but police is starting to get its own little growth now which is good so yeah. What motivated you to make attending the course a priority? 
timing, like I said, now is a really good time to really ride the growth. I think it's definitely a good skill set to have on you, even if it wasn't necessarily for teaching the the protocol. The whole experience is brilliant at teaching you class presentation. And a lot of people, ambulance and, and the police, they can go out one-to-one with people and they'll teach people. And I've done that for a few years and stuff, but that's very different from presenting to a whole classroom full of people. And the academy does a brilliant job at getting you prepared for that. And honestly, I think it'd be also nicer to do a bit of traveling, even if it's just, you know, nearby. It's nice to see other places, other forces, what other police forces are doing, how their centers work. It's all a bit of experience that you could take back home with you as well. Yeah, absolutely. So other instructors, once they become certified, once they pass their final teaching, they are usually attached to a center. But because you are in the UK and things are a little bit different, things are a little bit crazy there, you're going to go straight (laughs) to being a regional instructor. Is that right? That's correct. I've actually yesterday just got my invitation for my first team teach, which being Guernsey. Which Ooh. is a little island of France. So I'm look, looking forward to that. I've been to Guernsey before. It's a very nice little island. Kind of like UK in the 60s. Kind of got stuck in the past a bit, but it's really nice. Yeah, it is. It's beautiful. I We did a an article on the Guernsey Centre in the journal not too long ago. So I'll link that in the show notes. So what did you find the most valuable about the course, about being here in the building, about you know networking with other instructors? Yeah, that's a good question. Networking with other instructors, networking with those working at PDC already as well in the academy. Lots of skills, lots of knowledge as well between all the trainers. Just sort of vital to know as well if you're going forward, you know who you're going to ask a question from. Whereas maybe if you're doing it, you know, remote or you wouldn't necessarily know who to ask, but you can build your contacts, build your relationships and see how they move forward. Yeah. During the Instructor Academy, you have to do a presentation at the end of the week. How did you feel about teaching an entire group as opposed to one-on-one before the presentation and then after? Before was pure nerves, pure, pure nerves. During it, started off again nerves, but once you settled into it, you realize, just go with it, and it's actually not too bad at all. Luckily, you have two kind of sessions, so you had to do one in front of police colleagues, and once that's done, you realize, you know, you can sort of like settle in. Do you find yourself and your own presentation skills? And everyone's presentation skills were all, not even a little bit different, but actually vastly different. Everyone's got their own way of presenting. All the little bits that people did that might have been not necessarily like negative, but could have improved on, they disappeared in the second presentation and everyone was just sort of on it. And I think that it's good to do it in a smaller class before doing it before the big class. But we'll just do a bit of, preparation beforehand I went to other people taking the course went to their hotel rooms and we all sort of presented to each other and that was really good like to get feedback as well personally and prepped us all for it and then after just big relief just massive sigh of relief that is all done with and a sort of like pat on the back because it was all really good feedback and even the bits to improve on was, was really good feedback and you take it on board so yeah cool how would you describe your own personal teaching style in my head and I'm not sort of like, I don't want to be big, but it's like voice projection. I do think it's important to get your voice to the back of the room. Mm-hmm. But I did want to do a bit of research beforehand. So bring wherever area that you might be in. And in this example, Salt Lake City, I used examples from Salt Lake City as part of my team teach. So the bit that I remember in my head is that I did a um, protocol to do with animals and road obstructions. 
and that one of the biggest, the most dangerous animal in Salt Lake City is actually moose, because they come up in the mountains. You wouldn't think that they are in, when you think of that desert landscape of Utah, but there's moose up in the mountains, and sometimes they come down, basically, in Venetian, and people can hit them with cars and stuff like that. And then on the uh, photo for the protocol was a sheep. So I just referenced, you know, this protocol is moose on the loose and this protocol is a sheep in the street <laughs> and stuff like that. But it's to localise some of the knowledge I think was pretty good. And that's something I'm going to take forward as well. I'll probably use in Guernsey. What animal do you think in Guernsey is most dangerous? It's <laughs> <laughs> a good question. Humans. Humans. <laughs> yes, correct. That is always the correct answer. <laughs> So Matt, what is one thing that you would tell people who are thinking about possibly taking the Instructor Academy? I'd say absolutely go for it. Not only is it a quilt to your bow, it's a really good time. It's great too if you're already working with the system to see how the system's built. Why? For you work with experts that can understand why the protocol is the way it is, and there's people that are really passionate about making that protocol basically for the betterment of society. I mean, the betterment of society, I think, is a pretty worthy goal. So I, I don't know how, <laughs> how anyone's going to follow that up. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for being on the podcast today, Matt. And good luck in Guernsey. And we hope to talk to you again soon. Thank you very much. Welcome, David. Oh, thank you. Thank you for doing this. Let's start off where we always start. How did you get into emergency response as a career? Uh, I think it was when I was in high school, actually. I always sort of dreamed of being a paramedic. I was lucky enough to sit down with one of our careers counsellors and he basically sort of let me know that, well, the ambulance service here doesn't take people on straight out of school. So he actually recommended I go and get a registered nursing degree. So I went to university from high school. I got my nursing degree. I worked in a tertiary hospital here, so one of our major hospitals in Western Australia, doing acute surgical nursing, and then applied the application went up for expressions of interest to join the ambulance service. I put it in, went through a six month process, and then yeah, I was successful. And I suppose, yeah, 13 years later, best thing I've ever done and no regrets. Good, that's always good to hear from someone who's 13 years into a career, right? Why emergency medicine? You were in hospital, you could have stayed there. One, I wanted it to be really dynamic. I think in a hospital, you're kind of stuck inside. And I enjoy being out in the outdoors. I enjoy sort of being in different environments. It really mixes it up working as a paramedic. And I think I thoroughly enjoy that. I think there's also when you're working out on the road, there's that autonomy in being like we work under a medical director. But at the end of the day, it's, it's our responsibility to make sure we assess patients properly, that we provide appropriate timely treatment and that we transport them to an appropriate facility based on their presentation. And I think, you know, it's that responsibility and then the reward from actually doing your job properly. And you see that through good patient outcomes or patients surviving. And I think that's why I love the job to be honest. Yeah. There are a lot of moving parts in emergency medicine that there, that there still are within hospitals, but you're right. You're kind of out on the road and you have to make a lot of decisions kind of on the fly, right? Like you said, you have your medical director who's guiding things, but for the most part, you have to trust your training. You have to trust your gut. You have to trust the people you're there with. It is exciting. 
Absolutely. Uh, so tell us a little bit more about your position as senior clinician at your center. So I work within our operations center where we take all our emergency EMS calls and we dispatch ambulance resources. So my role is when ambulance calls come in, our, our team, our EMDs are limited based on what the caller says to which pathway they go down and the information that they can gather. So we can't, they can't go off and freelance and all the rest of it. They're very, very constrained within the protocols, which I think is a good thing. We come and basically help to complement the information that they've had and we will review calls and we will make sure one, they're appropriately prioritized, make sure that they're appropriately resourced from an ambulance point of view. We have the ability to send critical care paramedics, our rescue helicopters to scenes outside of our metropolitan area. If patients are in, involved in like big traffic accidents and need to come through to our tertiary centre, for example, we provide clinical oversight externally to crews that operate both within our metropolitan area and our volunteer crews that operate in the country. So they will call us up for clinical advice and guidance when they're on scene. They're often, a lot of the crews are very, very inexperienced. We're very, very, we're very, very rural parts of where I'm from. So we rely heavily on a volunteer workforce to be able to attend these cases. So they are able to provide BLS to patients. Just on the weekend, I was literally talking a crew through a cardiac arrest, talking them through a resus. So all of our defibrillator monitors actually have access to the live streams um, through telemetry access. So I, I logged into their monitor and then I would give them immediate feedback on what they're seeing, making sure that they're doing good chest compressions, giving them that sort of live feedback, even though I'm not there. So yeah, it's, it's very, very rewarding what I do. Cool. So how did you hear about the Instructor Academy? How did that come up? The shift that I work, one of the regional instructors actually is on that shift. I think she was the first one that sort of got me thinking about it, to be honest. I think she saw something in me when I saw the benefit of MPDS and saw the improved patient outcomes and saw it actually happening live. So our guys like on a, on a cardiac arrest call, giving CPR instructions, getting a defibrillator, shocking patients, and then the patients waking up and talking during the call before the paramedics have even arrived there. And I thought, this is really something that I want to be part of. And I sort of set out to actually try to learn and understand it through reading card sets, asking lots of questions, and then sort of listening and getting to know know the protocol through ProQA. And then, yeah, she hooked me up with a, a MPDS course. So I did the 24-hour course. And I was lucky enough to actually watch a team teach. So it was an instructor doing her first team teach. And I thought, yeah, this is something I want to do as well. In your role as a senior clinician at your center, did you have a lot of experience teaching people, mentoring people? So when I first came into operation center, I'd applied for a role. It was called a clinical support paramedic. So part of that role was working as a clinician within the operation center, but also working on like a rapid response vehicle in our metropolitan area and we would go and back up ambulance crews for high acuity patients. So patients in cardiac arrest, patients who were like significant traumas, 
patients who were just really poorly or where crews were outside of their depth, they would call for us to come and help them and provide sort of clinical oversight. And I suppose that's kind of where it all started really. And then a role came up for like a permanent role within the operations centre. Mm-hmm. And part of that role was being able to mentor, train and teach the new clinicians who were going to be coming into that role, which I'd just been doing for the previous three years. And so I got to basically change the way their training was taught for, for them coming into the, into the centre. I mean, I got three hours of sort of basic CAD training and kind of left to my own devices. So I kind of turned that around and basically I got one of our in-house MPDS instructors to actually give them a half day on MPDS so that they understood the system with which they were working and which they were overriding if we were sending different responses. And then I started teaching these guys in in an online environment and giving them sort of scenario-based training. And I enjoyed it a lot more than I thought I would. Six years ago, I certainly wouldn't have thought I would be doing instructing, but yeah, here we are and I couldn't be happier. Right on. So what did you like about the Instructor Academy? What did you like about hanging out with other future instructors? I couldn't have felt more supported. The team from the IAED and PDC were so incredibly humble and willing to teach us, wanting us to excel and exceed in the different specialties that we were being trained in. It was a really, it was a very full on sort of week. There were long days, but what I got out of it was incredible. And it's certainly going to make me better at sort of when I teach NPDS, but also when I teach like our, our clinicians coming into the room, some of the, the points and tips and tricks that they gave was very, very valuable. It's always good when you come away from a training or a conference, not just equipped to handle the task that specifically you set out to accomplish right or the skill you set out to refine but it's so nice when it helps with other things as well Mm, and i think you know one of the the most nerve-wracking parts but was actually we had to teach part of the course to the people that are in charge of it and who basically decide what what goes in into the protocols and also all my peers as well who were there It was probably one of the most valuable things I've ever done in terms of receiving immediate feedback after. So we would go around the table. Everyone would basically give you constructive feedback to make you better for next time. And it was all written down as well. So certainly as I've started preparing for my team teachers, being able to go back and refer back to the comments that were made to then make me better at delivering it to students. Yeah, it was a really, really good experience. It was, you don't really get that opportunity very often, I don't think. Yeah, especially the written feedback part. I feel like going about your day at work, you get a lot of verbal feedback or body language from people, but it's so nice to be able to go back to feedback that someone wrote and say, oh, that's right, I was going to work on this in my presenting style. So what is one thing that you would tell people considering taking this course? I think anyone who really has a real passion for the protocol and has seen it firsthand in action and the impact it has on saving patients' lives, improving their outcomes, you know, that's a real driver. What's certainly been a real driver for me to want to empower, teach and educate future EMD students because essentially, you know, I got into being a paramedic to be able to 
help patients improve their outcomes, relieve suffering. And I think this is one way that I see my ability to be able to kind of do that through other people. And the amount of people that or lives that you didn't touch through teaching EMDs and they go out sort of and take more calls and improve patient outcomes. I think that's an incredibly privileged position. And I think the amount of support guidance that I've had on my journey to be, to becoming an instructor has been next to none. And so I think anyone who's kind of wanting to do that similar journey should absolutely do it. I've had no regrets. It's been absolutely incredible so far. I'm looking forward to, to going out and actually teaching future EMDs and then the impact they can then have on, on patients. It's kind of like I've helped them along their journey. Yeah, absolutely. We'll have to have you back after you've done some of your team teachers and, and see how you're feeling about things. Well, that is it. That is all of the questions I have for you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. If you have any further questions about the Instructor Academy, about the experiences, or whether you qualify to become an instructor, or if you want to become another kind of instructor, like Eric was talking about in the first episode, we need software instructors and so many other different kinds, you can go ahead and email Eric directly with your questions. His email address is eric, E-R-I-C dot FIAD, F-A-Y-A-D, at emergencydispatch.org. If you have a wider question about emergency dispatch, if you have a really cool story to tell, if you want us to cover another topic on Dispatch in Depth, go ahead and email me at dispatchindepth at emergencydispatch.org. And surprise, remember how I said this is going to be a two-parter? This is actually going to be a three-parter. So the first part was Eric talking about the instructor experience from the academy side. This episode, obviously, was talking about the experiences of some people who went through the Instructor Academy not too long ago. And then the next episode is going to be the perspective of people who went through the Academy last year-ish and have done their team teaches. And some of them have started doing their own solo teaches. So look forward to that and you will hear from me again soon. Thanks for listening to Dispatch in Depth. Remember, it really helps if you rate and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Dispatch in Depth is hosted by me, Becca Barris. I'm also the technical director and producer, and Matthew Maiko is the executive producer. 